Paper 1. British Association of Dermatologists Guidelines for the Management of Adults with BCCs 2021 by Nazir et al., British Journal of Dermatology. What's new? BCCs are now defined as high-risk and low-risk. The BAD have adopted the RCPATH and National Comprehensive Captains and Network criteria. This key division determines management and is based on site, size, tumour type or factors and patient factors. Excision margins have changed. For low-risk BCCs, excise with 4mm margins. For high-risk, excise with 5mm margins. Interestingly, this is higher than the AAD and European guidelines for excision. This guidance is based on recurrence rates, with evidence suggesting that lower recurrence rates with slightly greater margins. The GP role in BCC management is clearly outlined. Low-risk BCCs can be managed by GPs, who are competent in doing so and are able to treat surgically. Where this is not available, patients should be referred to specialist care. Surgical excision is the recommended first-line treatment even for low-risk BCCs. For superficial BCC, the GP should discuss the range of treatment options and this may necessitate referral to specialist care. Low-risk BCCs are defined at low-risk sites less than 20mm on the trunk and extremities, but excluding hands, nail units, genitals, pre-tibia, ankles and feet, or less than 10mm on cheeks, forehead, scalp, neck and pre-tibia. They should be well-defined borders, not recurrent, not at the site of previous radiotherapy, and the patient should not be immunosuppressed. Histological criteria of low-risk BCCs include nodular or superficial subtypes, no basosquamous differentiation, invasion only to dermis or subcutaneous fat, depth of invasion less than 6mm, no perineural invasion, TNM stage PT1 less than 20mm maximum diameter, margins not involved, and clear by greater than 1mm. High-risk BCCs are defined where any one of the following criteria are met. In a high-risk site, greater than 20mm on the trunk or extremities, or greater than 10mm on the cheeks, forehead, scalp, neck and pre-tibia, or any size on the central face, eyebrows, periorbital, nose, lips, chin, mandible, preauricular, postauricular, temples, ears, gentle areas, hands, nail units, ankles and feet, but excluding the eyelid. They would have poorly defined borders, they may be recurrent at sites of previous radiotherapy or found in an immunosuppressed patient. Histological criteria for high-risk BCCs include infiltrative, subtypes either infiltrating, morphaic or micronodular, showing basosquamous differentiation, invasion beyond the subcutaneous fat, depth of invasion greater than 6mm, the presence of perineural invasion, TNM stage above low-risk criteria, 
and if the margins are involved or clear by less than one millimetre. Paper 2. Lupus anticoagulant single positivity during the acute phase of COVID-19 is not associated with venous thromboembolism or in-hospital mortality. Gendron et al. Arthritis and Rheumatology. Why we chose this paper? We've seen a lot of lupus anticoagulant positive results recently and we think it's important to recognise that this may be just a feature of COVID-19 and what the implications of a positive result are. Study aim and design. With the aim of investigating the prevalence and prognostic value of antiphospholipid antibodies in COVID-19, the authors set up a multi-centre prospective observational study in patients hospitalised with suspected COVID-19. What were the main findings? 154 had confirmed COVID and 95 did not. There was a significant increase only in lupus anticoagulant positivity among patients with COVID-19 compared to patients without COVID-19, 60.9% versus 23.7%. There was no association between lupus anticoagulant positivity and the risk of venous thromboembolism or in-hospital mortality. Lupus anticoagulant positivity was significantly associated with fibrinogen and CRP levels. Limitations this was a small sample size and the non-COVID group was quite heterogeneous. What's the take-home message? In patients with infectious conditions, including COVID-19, antiphospholipid antibodies can be transitorily positive. Positivity is not associated with an increased risk of thromboembolism or mortality. Paper 3. Purpura as an indicator of severity in drug-induced hypersensitivity syndrome or DRESS. Takai et al. Journal of the European Academy of Dermatology. Why we chose this paper. Human herpes virus 6, HHV6 reactivation following prolonged exposure to certain drugs is believed to be important in the pathogenesis of DRESS as is CMV cytomegalovirus reactivation in severe complications. In general, clinical factors to aid prognostication in DRESS drug reactions eosinophilia with systemic syndromes are lacking. Study aim and design. This multi-institution retrospective analysis of 46 DRESS patients, which included a good range of disease severity, aimed to correlate skin manifestation at presentation with disease severity using a recently developed scoring system proposed by the same authors. What were the main findings? Lower limb purpura was more common, 69%, in patients with severe disease, compared with mild, 46%, or moderate, 55%, and the area of purpura moderately correlated with disease severity. Facial erythema, present in 94%, facial edema, present in 71%, and the type of rash, e.g. macular papula, did not. Limitations this was retrospective with small numbers and the DRESS disease severity score is not validated. Purpura may be representative of other factors such as venous insufficiency and liver involvement affecting coagulopathy status. That said, it could represent a simple, useful bedside assessment tool. What's the take-home message? 
Further studies are needed, but the presence of purpura at initial assessment may indicate a more severe disease course in dress. Paper 4. Electrocardiogram as Lyme Disease Screening Test. Neville et al. Journal of Paediatrics. Why we chose this paper. The diagnosis of Lyme's disease is often delayed, and even if it is recognised at a localised stage, waiting for serological diagnosis, which requires two positive results, often hinders recognition of the myriad of complications of early disseminated disease such as carditis. Half of Lyme disease cases are seen in children, who are often asymptomatic for carditis when present. Study aim and design. The aim was to assess the predictive value of abnormal ECG findings as a diagnostic marker for Lyme diagnosis. This eight-centre prospective study in Lyme endemic areas of United States looked at children less than 21 years being assessed for Lyme disease in A&E who had ECGs taken. Lyme disease was confirmed clinically with erythema migrans present or via two-tier positive serology. What were the main findings? In 546 children being assessed for Lyme who had an ECG, 42 had evidence of carditis, especially AV block, and 25 of these went on to have Lyme confirmed. The sensitivity of ECG evidence of carditis for diagnosing Lyme was 12%, but specificity was 95%. Only 50% of the children with carditis had cardiac symptoms. Limitations. This study was conducted in a Lyme endemic area. ECG changes in Lyme carditis may fluctuate. What's the take-home message? ECG is immediately available and can be useful in suspected Lyme disease. A normal ECG should not be used to exclude Lyme disease, but an abnormal ECG makes the diagnosis more likely. Paper 5. The prevalence of mastocytosis and haemoptera venom allergy in the United States. Schuller, Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. Why we chose this paper. Some studies have suggested that patients with mastocytosis are at higher risk of hymenoptera venom allergy, HVA, and that it can be it can be more severe in these patients, with tryptase levels being an indicator of severe reactions. However, this was based on data from tertiary referral centres, so it could be affected by referral bias. Study aim and design. This retrospective prevalence study identified patients with HVA and or mastocytosis using United States insurance claim database extraction, including 27 million patients. They also looked at 161 patients undergoing venom immunotherapy, VIT, to look at the link between tryptase and reaction severity. What were the main findings? 0.167% of patients had HVA overall. 0.01% had mastocytosis overall. And 0.097% of patients with HVA had mastocytosis. Tryptase levels did not correlate with HVA reaction severity, but was higher in patients with systemic VIT reactions. Limitations. They didn't tell us the percentage of patients with mastocytosis that had HVA. The sub-analysis of patients who had high tryptase levels included a small sample only. Study only had covered those with private insurance. 
Limited follow-up time may underestimate prevalence. What's the take-home message? Rates of HVA overall are lower than previously thought, and although patients with HVA have higher rates of mastocytosis, it remains rare. We should be aware of this association and refer for EpiPen and VIT where appropriate. Paper 6. Evaluation of thalidomide treatment of patients with chronic erythema multiforme, RU et al., the Journal of American Medical Association Dermatology. Why we chose this paper. 30% of erythema multiforme patients become chronic with either recurrent flare-ups or persistent target lesions. First-line treatments including valacyclovir fail to induce remission in about a third of patients but there's a lack of evidence to guide clinicians on second-line therapies, with previous reports including only small case series. Study aim and design. A retrospective multi-centre cohort study in France of 35 adult patients over an eight-year period who had a dermatologist-confirmed diagnosis of erythema multiforme, including biopsy and IMF for mucosal lesions. The aim was to explore thalidomide effectiveness in patients with erythema multiforme who had already failed at least one other treatment and the primary outcome was complete remission within six months of thalidomide treatment. What were the main findings? After six months of thalidomide, 66% were in complete remission. Fatigue was seen in 46% and neuropathy in 40%. 80% had at least one side effect and 56% stopped treatment by 12 months due to side effects. Although the average dose needed for remission was 50 to 100 mg per day, a lower dose, e.g. 50 mg alternate days, was more tolerable with less neuropathy. Notably, as neuropathy is, the only, reversible, is only reversible in about 50%, early cessation of thalidomide is vital in these patients. Limitations this was a retrospective design, but a decent-sized cohort, considering they were only looking at refractory cases of a rare disease. What's the take-home message? Where antiviral treatment has failed, the litamide may represent an effective second-line treatment for chronic erythema multiforme, but its use is limited by toxicity. Noteworthy cases. Paper 7. Vexus. Clinical presentation of a newly described somatic auto-inflammatory syndrome. Alhamida, Journal of American Academy Dermatology Case Reports. What is it? Vacuoles, E1 enzymes, X-linked, auto-inflammatory somatic, vexus syndrome, is a newly described acquired auto-inflammatory syndrome. There is a somatic loss of function mutation affecting the UBA1 gene resulting in the activation of the innate immune system and widespread systemic inflammation. UBA1 encodes the major E1 activating enzyme required for initiation of all cellular ubiquitin signaling. When should I think about it? It's characterised by recurrent fever, cytopenias, dysplastic bone marrow with vacuolated myeloid and erythroid precursors, and cutaneous and pulmonary inflammationary inflammation. In the New England Journal of Medicine publication that first described the syndrome, cutaneous features were present in 88% of patients in the initial cohort and included neutrophilic dermatoses, sweet syndrome, vasculitis, 
polyarthritis nodosa, giant cell arthritis and chondritis. It presents as treatment-resistant syndrome that is often fatal. How do we diagnose it? Genetic sequencing will identify the UBA1 mutation. Ad libitum. The ethics corner. Paper 8. Should all babies have their genome sequenced at birth? By Secker et al. British Medical Journal. The Genomics England will soon be pilot sequencing 200,000 healthy babies. The Case 4 pilot sequencing. 1. Genomic sequencing is an extension of existing newborn screening. 2. Extensive research shows that genetic screening can save lives and be cost-effective. 3. The authors say timing is crucial. A phased rollout is proposed, with newborn screening for only a selection of genetic diseases sequentially throughout life, when interventions could be beneficial, e.g. Wilms tumour for children and cardiomyopathy for teenagers. 4. If the sequenced data resides with the individual's medical record, then it can be reanalyzed, e.g. when considering a drug with a pharmacogenetic guidance. The case against. The current pilot proposal is not to interrogate for rare but actionable findings, but to acquire and retain the genome, genome sequence. Babies cannot provide informed consent to share this vast amount of data. 2. Clinical utility is minimal as we can already screen for these conditions, and they're rare. 3. The benefit to society of this research can be mirrored by screening parents instead. 4. It may affect an individual's ability to acquire health insurance in the future. 5. The system could be open to misuse in the future if laws change, e.g. for forensics. 6. The first question should, should be, should all adults have their genome sequenced? Paper 9. The Wider Medical World Measles outbreaks likely as Covid pandemic leaves millions of world's children unvaccinated. WHO warns? British Medical Journal. A recent WHO report focused on misvaccinations worldwide and reduced disease surveillance systems following Covid-19 pandemic. 22.3 million children missed their first measles vaccine in 2020, up 3 million since 2019. Low to middle income countries were worst hit. UK, US coverage has held steady. The impact of lower vaccination rates has been mitigated by COVID-19 measures, e.g. masks, travel restrictions. The pressure to vaccinate against COVID-19 worldwide should not come at the cost of routine immunisation programmes. Widening gaps in coverage risk becoming outbreaks, thereby exposing children to a preventable potentially deadly disease. Lastly, a possible sterilising cure of HIV infection without stem cell transplantation, Turk et al, Annals of Internal Medicine. A 30-year-old lady was identified as HIV positive in 2013 and during the patient's eight years of follow-up, viral load tests were below detection thresholds and there were no clinical or laboratory signs of HIV-associated disease. No ART was started until 2019 when she became pregnant. After delivering a healthy baby, she stopped ART, and her HIV-1 viral loads remain undetectable by PCR assays.
While there are small numbers of people who are natural suppressors of HIV, this patient shows something beyond disease suppression, the absence of HIV-1 proviruses and replication-competent HIV-1 viral particles, implying a sterilising cure for them during natural infection. Only one other similar patient has ever been reported, but that occurred post-stem cell transplantation. If we can better understand how this happened, perhaps a cure for HIV might be possible.
Chanson de Matin, Edwin Algar, 1857-1934, by the Advanced String Group, Sir William Perkins School. Isla Galpin, first violin. Hyan Lee, second violin. Miss Townsend, viola. Amelia Christian, cello. <laughs>